Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. To learn more about our church, please visit us online by visiting ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. As we jump into today's message, our hope and our prayer is that you'd be challenged and encouraged in your walk and relationship with Jesus. Now, let's jump into the word together. Go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 4. We're going to read the end of 4 and we're going to read right into 5. Because the the chapter divisions were added 1,500 years after the time of writing. They're not divine. And sometimes we read, we get to the end of the chapter and we just think, oh, end of story. And the next chapter is a new story or a new thought. Sometimes we just put them in really bad spots. And we need to continue the thought because they're connected. And so nothing about, you know, the 316 of John 316 is divine. It, those are just coordinates to help us find passages a little bit easier. And so we're going to read the end of the Acts 4. We're going to read into 5. And if some of you that are Bible students, you know what the beginning of 5 is about. So it's going to get a little spicy this morning. It's going to get a little, a little chippy, you know, like a good high school basketball game when they're throwing some elbows. It's getting a little pushy, a little shovey. I, I like that kind of basketball, right? It doesn't look like it. You know, I like to watch that kind of basketball. And so if you have your Bible, read along with me. And so this is a little, little bit of history here real quick, just so we all know where we're at in the story of God's redemption and the landscape of human history. So this is after the ministry of Jesus, He died on the cross, resurrection. He appears to the disciples. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that he appears to over 500 people even at one time. And that was a process of about 40 days that he was appearing to the disciples in different times, different locations. And then at the end of that, he ascends into heaven. The disciples are seeing him go and two angels appear and say, what are you standing around doing? Get to work. Come on. He had a command for you. He had a commission. And so then, the, then they go back to Jerusalem. They're in the upper room, the same spot where they took communion with Jesus at that Passover meal. Right? And then the Holy Spirit comes that day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes, fills the disciples. They start prophesying, speaking known languages Right, And so all these surrounding visitors, because it passed over all the Jews from all over the area that had different languages, and they would be coming to Jerusalem, and all of a sudden they see all these disciples speaking, and they're like, how does he know my language? See, a lot of times we think that Acts 2 tells us that it was a babbling. It wasn't. It was known languages that they were speaking, and they were telling, telling of the gospel, speaking you know, of the resurrection of Jesus in that. And so they... Uh, start and then Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, stands up that day, preaches, talking about, hey, that same Jesus that you crucified, yeah, he, he's the one. That, that was your Messiah that you missed. And the Jews respond, well, what must we do? And he says, repent and put your faith and your trust in Jesus. And 3,000 people come to the Lord that day. See, we love scripture when we read that and think, wow, in one sermon, 3,000 people come to the Lord. But then when churches get in moments like this where it's getting a little tight, like Jerron walked up here and he goes, hey, just so you know, upstairs is packed. It is slammed upstairs. There's probably 50-ish people up there. That's probably getting really hot too. And they're watching me on TV. Like That's a struggle. Like in person, it's a struggle. You imagine like, now I got to look at a TV at this guy. I'm so sorry, right? So sorry. And, and so we, we, in churches, we start getting a little bit slammed like this. And it's like, oh, we don't need all these people here. And sometimes churches can fall into that. We want the us for and no more 
Why are we trying to be a church with more people? I understand that it was the spirit of God that brought 3,000 people to the Lord. Even by the end of you know, that first even week, we see 3,000 and 5,000. Like he was bringing a lot of people to the Lord. That was his heart, is to reach lost, broken people in darkness and bring them into a saving relationship with Jesus. So the moment a church has the mentality of, no, we're good just with our little club here, and we don't need anybody else, that is the most anti-gospel thing that could ever happen. The moment that the church loses its heart to reach the lost and the hurting, you've just lost. And so understand that as the spirit of God is moving, this is what is happening. And so all these people that traveled in for Passover, that they've done year after year after year, now something different is happening. The spirit of the Lord is being poured out and they're hearing of Jesus. And it's almost so important that someone, they didn't even go home. No, we're staying here in Jerusalem. There's something too amazing that is happening. Well, how do you accommodate so many people? Well, it takes resources, you know, just even have lunch and housing and different things. And so this is the kind of the atmosphere. This is the setting of this early church in Jerusalem that we pick up the story here in Acts chapter four. And so now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So you see a great unity in the early church. Imagine if we had that even now. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So they're sharing everything that they had. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Some critical scholars try to say that the resurrection is this mythological story that his disciples made up because they, they were just so moved by Jesus that they made it up and it kind of expanded into legend and it took a couple hundred years. Except we see from the very beginning especially even in the ancient manuscripts that we have that are so early to the time of writing, the resurrection was the core of the message of the early church. It is not something that developed later that is a legend and myth story, but it has always been at the very beginning and it's the very core of the Christian message. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which if you continue studying the book of Acts, you'll read a little bit more about him, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so you're hearing the whole orderly church that everybody is giving of what they have because the work that God is doing in the early church. And so you see this generally, but then Luke, who writes the book of Acts, kind of zooms in a little bit, and he gives us an example of one of this. He goes, well, let me tell you one story about how this is happening in the church, but let me tell you about one guy named Barnabas, who had a field, he sold it, and said, man, the work that's happening at the church, that's, that's way more important than whatever I was going to do in that field. Maybe grow some asparagus, you know. Who knows what I would have done with it? Get some chickens, some goats, maybe did a little homesteading. You know, that's the popular thing. He said, no, the work of the church, way too important. Now we go to chapter five. 
but a man named Ananias. And, his, and with his wife, Sapphira, they sold a piece of property, just like Barnabas. And with his wife's knowledge, which is a good thing, right? There, there's a marital uh, principle there. Men, don't do anything like selling a big piece of property without talking to your wife. You know, like if your wife looks at you and says, you did what without talking to me first? That's not a conversation you really want to enter into, you know? Definitely don't respond, well, I don't need to answer to you, woman, right? Yeah, don't do that. Yes, Jesus called his own mother woman, but it was out of respect. Don't, yeah, it's, you know, don't do that. So with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your hearts? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. You imagine going to church that Sunday? Oh, there's that new church down on the corner. I'll go see what's going on there. And, you know, pastor calls up Ananias. Hey, we need to talk. And after the conversation, he just falls down dead. You know, <laughs> then the college ministry gets up, drags the dead body out of the church. Be like, well, when's Sunday school? You know, like, I'm not going back there. <laughs> like, what? And after an interval of time, about three hours, his wife came in, which, like, let's not even talk about the service could still be going on. Three hours long. You should research how long the early church would meet together on a Sunday and what typical worship looked like. We look like pansies, just going to call it. So and after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what happened. And Peter said to her, tell me, whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, yes, for so much. Again, we're not looking at the numbers. It's about the heart. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet, breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Can you imagine being the young men of the church? Like, we got to drag a dead body. Like, dead bodies weigh a lot, right? I've had to do that a little bit. Maybe not in ministry, but when I was in nursing, yeah, we've had that happen. And if you imagine, you know, you just drag one guy out, buried him, you get back to the church, and it's like, ah, oh, finally I got to sit down and get a, do a donut and some coffee or something. It's like, oh, got another dead body for you to carry out of the church. Like, that's a crazy ministry. And are we not just like, is it not a grace of our Lord that we don't continue that? that the story of Ananias and Sapphira were almost as an example because if God continued that, can you imagine just even walking into the sanctuary? Like, I don't want to be lying to the Holy Spirit. If I walk in and just drop dead, like we don't need more cow kid space. We need a morgue in the church. <laughs> We're like, we got to up the amount of donuts that we buy. We got to order more coffee. We got to call the morgue. We got five more today. So sorry, you know. Like that's a crazy thought to have. But look, the unity of the early church, it was a wonderful evidence of the work of God's spirit among them. And because of their unity, they regarded people 
more important than things. And that's the whole heart for the house campaign, that it is not about a building. This is just two by fours and drywall and metal or steel or I don't even know what it is, right? They didn't cover that in seminary. You can go down to Menards and get it for 11% off. Get your little mail-in rebates. People ask me like, well, what happens if the church burns down? I'll see you at 8, 9.45 and 11.30. What if it's raining? You're going to get wet. <laughs> well, what if, what if this doesn't happen? What if we're, we're not able to add on and build? Like, what are you going to do then, pastor? I'm going to tell you right now, like I have no release from the Lord to stop pursuing the community and the lost and the hurting. So when we talk about the heart for the house, we will continue to be a home for the broken. We want to continue to be an encouragement to those that are hurting. We want to be a family for the follower of Jesus. We want to live out what he has truly called us to be. And I'm going to tell you right now, the board is greatly concerned with me. You're preaching three services? Like, does that not wear you out? Oh, yeah. Catch me at about 1.30. I'm a zombie, exhausted. And they're like, what do you, what do you, you really do four services? Yeah. You've heard my passion about it. I will not put a no vacancy sign on the building. I will not do it. I'm not going to limit what God is doing over my comforts and my rest. Will it greatly affect us? Absolutely. I'm very mindful of our staff. And, and if we had to move to a fourth or a fifth service, I'll do it. And I know it would greatly disrupt, you know, what our work week would look like and our ability to do other ministries. And so I love these guys that sit at the board level and are concerned for me and have a heart for me. I love that. But at the end of the day, I don't care. I'm not going to stop preaching the word. I'm not going to stop reaching people. We're not going to stop discipling people. And so if the expansion of the building or a new location of the building or more square footed, if it doesn't happen, all right, we're going to use with what God has blessed us with. And that's, and I'm not going to change from it because I would rather walk in obedience to what the Lord has for us and be exhausted on the borderline of burnout, hurting than to walk into disobedience. And so it is a very real struggle that we have. And we see the unity and we see that, that people, even at the early church, people mattered more than things. And it's the same way. The whole heart for the house is people focused, but we know, right? And it doesn't take much to think about that, that if we focus on people and we invite them in and they're a part of what God is doing, well, yeah, there's going to have to be some real tangible things that we have to handle. More bathrooms, more space, more seating, more, like, more parking. Like, we understand that. But the moment that we shift and it comes about, it's more about things than it does people, again, we're operating in a direct opposition to what the early church was and to what God would have for us. And so the early church, they had this, this view that people were more important than their things. In the early church, they recognized God's ownership of it all. Right? We, our, our mission statement, a kingdom before Calvary, but Jesus over everything. That was their view. That is because of Jesus and how he had impacted their lives so deeply, knowing that everything already belonged to God. You know, I think it's the Psalms that talk about the, the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all the Lord's. 
We're merely just given from the Lord what we have to steward it. So they already had that view. Everything was God's already, but because of Jesus's impact on our lives, going from a grave to a garden, going from the death to life in Christ, because of this impact that was so deeply moved in them, they found it so easy to share all things. I mean, the the whole act of giving unto what the Lord was doing was so easy because they knew what the Lord had given them. How could I not? Look at, like, I'm so undeserving, lost and broken in my sin, and God gave me life that he worked and moved in me, in my heart. How could I not get behind that work and what he is doing in others? Like how much hate would have to be in our hearts to know the work of Jesus in us, that he saved us and brought just redemption and restoration to our life and to say, but I don't want that to happen to anybody else. God saved me and that's good enough. How could we not have just a, a burdening upon us to see others walking without a relationship with Christ, knowing how much he brings to us? And so this very beautiful, wonderful thing, here's the struggle with the early church. The generosity was now gonna be abused. See, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, his pride and ego, they saw Joseph roll in and say, guys, the Lord is moving and working and I love it. And so I sold this and man, use it. Let's advance the kingdom and what God is doing. But Ananias and Sapphira saw it and they thought, ooh, Did you see how everybody responded to that? Did you see how everybody was like maybe coming up and congratulating him maybe or saying something or just, or even just the reverence of like, wow, that's like a super Christian. He just floated in. Did you see that? He was glowing. It was amazing. And then he looks at his wife. We should do that. Wouldn't that be cool if that was us? We have that piece of property. Let's sell it. So they sell it. And here's the issue. Let's use our terminology. Let's say they sold it for $100,000. It's like, but that's a lot of money. Remember that? We were, we were going to sell that and go on our little trip. Remember we were going to do that Mediterranean cruise together now that the kids are out of the house and we're empty nesters. You know, that's, that was something that was just going to be fun. And so let's keep back some of it. But even though it's less than what, what, what Joseph gave, let, let's say we gave it all too because we want people to have that same response to us. So they sell the property for 100,000. They keep 50, but they lie to the Holy Spirit. They don't lie to Peter. They don't lie to the church. They lie to the Spirit and said, oh yeah, we gave it all. And Peter knew. Why? Because the Spirit of God spoke to Peter and said, you wanna talk about a hard pastoral conversation? Hey, we got to have a conversation. Ananias, it was yours the whole time. Why did you have to lie about it? Why didn't you just walk in authenticity? Why didn't you just walk and just be real? Just say you sold it for a hundred thousand. You're going to keep 50. So you and your lady can go on a little cruise and do a little something fun or whatever you had. You're going to build that man cave. Don't lie about it. Just be honest. You could even be so honest to say, it scares the snot out of me to lay everything down to the Lord. And so we're going to keep this back. And we're going to lay this down at the apostles' feet. Don't, don't lie about it. 
But how easy is it for us as Christians to put the mask on and walk into church because we can't be honest with one another? That we feel we have to put that same facade on. And in doing that, that little thing right there, giving unto the church, because Ananias and Sapphira, they still gave. But again, if the enemy can't stop the work of God with a direct attack, he can stop the work of the ministry with indirect attacks of pride and coveting where our egos can get in the way. And we sometimes, we, we as Christians, we want to separate what God is doing in our lives, our spiritual walk with what we do with money. But again, Jesus over everything. It's the second half of our mission statement. So every aspect of our lives Jesus sits on the throne of our hearts and he wants to rule over that. There's not one aspect of your life that he doesn't want to be king over. He's never going to look at us and be like, oh, you want to coach your son's basketball? Perfect. I, won't, I don't want any part of that. No. You have a leverage. You have an opportunity. You have influence into a younger generation. Teach them more about basketball than just dribbling. Teach them about life. Teach them about the Lord. I ran cross country. My coach was a wonderful cross country coach and he was a a wonderful man of God. I learned more about life and faith than I did about running, as you can tell. (laughs) The running didn't really stick with me. But the things that he taught me about life, the things that he taught me about the Lord did. And so every aspect of our lives Jesus wants to lead and guide us in, even what we do with our money. And a huge deception that we have from the enemy is to try to separate those things. But remember, what did Jesus say? When he was talking about, you know, hey, you're going to be in a temptation to try to move your worship from one master to another, and you can't serve two. And he goes, I'll tell you right now, I'll name it. You know what your number one competitor will be in serving two masters? Because you won't be able to serve God and money. And it's one of the greatest things that the enemy can use to disrupt the work of ministry. And it's one of the things I think the church is so afraid to speak into. Because a lot of times we have that negative mentality. Oh, there's just another pastor. Talking about money, hold your wallets, sit on it really hard. Like, I've had those things said to me. Oh, you're a pastor, hold your wallets, ha, 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 ha. Oh, yeah, I'm laughing too. Kick you in the shin, right? (laughs) Didn't think a pastor would do that either, did you? But we can't serve two masters. And Jesus is already calling out, like, I'll let you know one of your greatest struggles you're going to have is how you handle your money. And will you handle that in a kingdom-minded way? Will you handle that with Jesus sitting on the throne of your hearts? And so think of the financial decisions that we make as normal humans every day. You know, buying a house. That's not a financial decision. That's not a physical decision. That's a spiritual decision. You know, taking a new job or how you're even going to live your lives, what kind of manner of your life is going to be. All these matters are going to directly affect our walk with God now and in the future. Before me and my wife ever really got into full-time ministry, I was still working as a pediatric nurse. We were volunteering at the church as youth leaders, having no idea what we were doing whatsoever, right? We had about 12 students. I really felt like Jesus. I was like, you know, kind of a young man. We got these teenagers, like we're gonna go walk on water. And it didn't happen. And so one of the things that we wanted to do, because we were broke, 
The church was broke. They, we had no budget whatsoever to do anything. And it was like, but we want to pour into these students. And we struggled with the idea of our small little house. We always wanted our house to be open to students. But we have this small house. We have nothing. And we said, all right, we're just going to use what the Lord has given us. We're going to get over our own pride and ego and invite them into our small little broken rundown house. And we're just going to trust the Lord in it. And so we're like, we, what are we going to do? It's like, well, let's, let's do like a movie night. We'll have dinner, right? Like you, you come to Cal students, man, Sean and Z, they're making chicken tacos. They're making spaghetti and meatballs. Like they throw out some food. Again, we were broke and we had no budget from the church. We had hot dogs and macaroni and cheese. And we're not even talking like craft. We're talking like that 10 cent a box off brand. Like, you know, that's not cheese nor noodle, right? <laughs> And we don't even want to talk about the hot dogs, you know? We're like, oh, did you get the all beef kosher? No, we got the cheapest ones that are barely food appropriate for human consumption. Those are the best. And we tell the students, hey, we're going to open up our house. You guys are more than welcome to come over. Let's do a movie night. We'll have dinner. And it was hot dogs and mac and cheese. We had no area to sit whatsoever. We're eating on paper plates. We're all, and they all show up and they bring their friends. My wife looked at me, I looked at her, and I was like, there's a spot that was like, oh, our house is so small and run down. Like, I wonder what they're thinking. We get to the end of the night, and like our core students were like, this was so awesome. Thank you. Because we used what God had given us. And it wasn't a financial decision. It wasn't a physical, it was spiritual. That we provided a space for students to gather and they felt safe. We had great conversations and they don't remember even, even when I got into vocational ministry, I've asked my former students, Hey, what was one of the most impactful things of our ministry? And I'm waiting to hear like, Oh, that one sermon, that was so good. Nope. <laughs> kind of like now, like I ask some people like, what's your favorite sermon? And be like, uh, you know, that one, that one day, like I get it. My students response when we got to come to your house and just hang out. That was some of the most impactful times in our life. And so looking at how we live our lives, everything that God has blessed us with. And again, our, our coveting can be like, well, if I, would, if I would have had a bigger house, then we could have had more students. It's not about that. Well, if we could have had more of a budget, we could have had better food, then we would have got more. It wasn't about that. Well, we faithfully respond with what God has given us for ministry, we have to understand that the heart of the matter, that's what the whole sermon title is, is the heart of the matter matters to God. It's not what we have. It's the heart behind it. And so for the decisions of our lives, they need to be made with an eye on eternity. Like we need to be focused on heavenly things, like understanding that our citizenship is not here. We're sojourners. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so all of our decisions here need to be made with the lens of knowing where our home is. Like there isn't one decision in our lives that we could ever make that it would be inappropriate to seek the Lord about first. I don't take it too crazy. Like you're driving down the highway. Do I take a right or a left? What do I do? Quick, you know, like I'm praying about it. No, don't. But the, the decisions of our lives, seek the Lord. And the problem with Ananias and Sapphira and their sin is it's imitated. 
in many ways today in the church because it's too easy to be happy with the image of spirituality without having the reality of the spiritual life. That we, we, we so easily want to create or allow the impression that we're students of the word, that we're men and women of faith, that we're just faithful servants to the body, when in reality, we're not. We like walking in and thinking people look at us and be like, oh, look at them, they have their lives together. When in reality, let's just be honest, this is my life way of description, not prescription. You know, there's many times that me and my wife would be driving to church, having a really good conversation with certain volume levels, discussing who is really right, and me convincing her that that's not her. And miraculously, you want to talk about the power of God? The moment that we drive onto church property, unity. And it all goes away. And we walk in. How are you guys? Oh, we're just so wonderful. (laughs) You know, just have my little helpmate with me, just doing life together. We're just one flesh. (laughs) Even though I'm thinking about amputeeing something, (laughs) cutting her out of my life. Too blessed to be depressed. The warmth of the Lord, like this coffee, he's just so good. Then we come into worship and we raise our hands. We sit and I put my arm around her as we listen to the pastor, shake hands on our way out, get back in the car, and the moment we're off the church property, and another thing. And we, we just pick her right back up where he's like, she thought I forgot. I know what you said. I know you thought you got the last word coming into the church property. Like, oh, you just wait, woman. Right? Yeah, you're on holy ground now, but I'll drag your body off of this and start this fight again. Because that's what we do. We put the mask on and we act like everything's perfectly fine. That church is the last place that we could be really honest with each other. You know, you find more honesty at the bar than you do at the church. You find more support and encouragement at the bar than you do at the church. My mom was a bartender. I grew up there. I've seen it. Like, I'm good at pool because of that. Like, your pastor will smoke you on a game of pool. (laughs) But you see the hurt and the brokenness. And, And those individuals went to the bar because that's where they found fellowship. That's where they found support. That's where they found a family. And how sad is that's the very banner that the church is supposed to be But when we walk in, what do we find? How prone is the church to be just condemning and judgmental? And we look down upon each other. We put the mask on that we can't be real and honest. And how many of us have that image of spirituality, but we have no reality of it. And we have these great impressions that we have that we really are something that we're not. And we exaggerate our spiritual accomplishments, our effectiveness in ministry. Why? Because we want to appear to be something that we're not. And that was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. I want everybody else to think something else about me than what I really am. And in doing that, I want to pull the glory that we're supposed to, all glory to God about it. I want to pull that away from him and I want it to shine on me instead. And I want everybody in the congregation to look at me that way. I want them to walk in awe of me when I walk into the sanctuary instead of walking in awe of the Lord Jesus and what he is doing. 
it was a grace that God dropped them to not allow that behavior to continue. But think of the boldness of what it would take for Peter to stand up knowing that the Holy Spirit's leading and guiding him to have that conversation. See, the great sin, it's rooted in pride. The same thing that Satan attacked Adam and Eve in the garden, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Fast forward to Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. At the end of it, Satan tempts him. And what's he go with? Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And you go to 1 John and you hear the same thing. It's the same attack that we have from the enemy that it even comes at the early starting of the church, that pride corrupts it, even at its very starts. And pride corrupts the church now, I think more quickly than anything else. Because we can't be honest and real with one another. See, one of the things that the Lord has really been stirring in my heart uh, personally, right? So a little bit of a, here's my journal and a sermon for you. See, Jesus calls us to confess our sins to one another. That's, that's a biblical verse, confess your sins to one another. And that's one of the areas that our board steps into. They look at me and they ask, how's your walk with the Lord? What are you struggling with? How's your life? How are you growing? Those are conversations that I have. You know, one board member is my accountability partner on all my devices. That if old Nick and those old sins want to come back up in my life, I mean, think of the weight that that man carries. That if I veer into that sin that Satan had such a hold on me again, his love for the Lord and his love for the church will trump his love for me and will not allow that to continue, we need that. You know how humbling it was for me even to look at him and say, hey, I'm, I have this software on all my devices so that anything that I search, I have an accountability partner because I know who BC Nick was. And, and I, I want you to be my accountability partner in that. Like I had to confess. Yeah, like your pastor wasn't saved at five and everything's perfectly fine. He's got some baggage, he's got some wounds, he's got some scars, but I wanna put good systems and guardrails in my life so that that stays buried in the grave and the nick now saved by grace is the one that continues walking in obedience to the Lord, but I know I need to put some guardrails on. Like I had to confess that to him, I had to tell him that, you know? It is, it is biblical for us to confess our sins to one another. Now what I'm not going to do is grab a mic and say, all right, who's ready? You know, confess your sins. Anybody up right here? Jim, you want to, Nick, you want to come up? You know, let's, let's have it all out. No, no, no. But do you have, I mean, that's one of the parts of life group, not even maybe the life group as a whole, but is there a couple guys, a couple ladies in your life group that you can be really honest with? If you're saying no, you're not walking in the fullness of what Jesus would call for us as the body of Christ. If you're sitting here saying, I can't be honest with someone else other than your spouse, you're not walking in the fullness of your relationship with Jesus because it is a very communal thing. And that's why life groups are so important is to foster relationships to get to the point that one of the things is that we could confess our sins to one another. 
So we're called to do that. And we're called to hide our righteousness. Jesus says, if you're going to go pray, don't stand out on the street corner, babbling on like a monkey in a tree, looking like an idiot. Go into your room, close the door and pray. And what your father sees that you've done in secret, he'll reward you for that. And so we're called to confess our sin, but to hide our righteousness. But how easily for us in the church today do we hide our sin? Can't let anybody know the brokenness that I deal with. Can't let anybody know truly the sin that I struggle with. And a lot of times we don't want anybody to know why, because we love it more than we love the Lord. We find more identity, more comfort, more anything than we do in the Lord, and I don't want to let it go. We hide our sin and we boast in our righteousness. See, that's, that's very different, and we're so prone to want to hide that sin. We're so prone to want to boast in our righteousness, and we have to understand that money, resources, treasure, talents, the building, whatever it is, it's just a tool. It's just an investment into the community, and that's the core of the whole heart for the house, that we're investing into the community Jesus has called us to reach. And so when we talk about confessing our sin to one another and hiding our righteousness, it goes back to the heart of the matter. That is your walk with the Lord more about the attention that we would get from others than it is walking in obedience to Jesus? Is the heart for the house more about trying to have this big, new, lavish, no, building? No, it's about people. And even as we talk about it, it, just to be very honest, because even the building, let's just talk about cost for one moment, right? Uh, uh, That landscape of what building costs has changed a little bit. Uh, I think most of us would be underwhelmed. We saw the number at Vision Sunday that we're looking in the the range of four, five to six million dollars. And so my wife was, and let's have the honest comment, my wife was hearing that and she's like, man, I just struggle with that. And we were driving through Springfield and we saw a really nice, big, white church and big windows and very ornate. And it was amazing. She's like, I just don't want Calvary to turn into that. I said, woman, that's $40 million. What are you talking about? (laughs) I was like, I think we could pay for the bathroom right there. I think that's what we got. Like, we're just looking at more of the same. You probably roll up and just see a bigger metal building and be like, that was $4 million. And be like, bread ain't a nickel anymore. <laughs> you know, like gasoline's not a dime. Like it's a different landscape that we live in. But even in that, the Lord is the same. And the mission of the church is the same. And so it is just a tool. It's just an investment into the community that Jesus has called us to reach. But how quickly can a godly thing a good thing become an evil thing when we do it for ourselves. when we want to start boasting in our righteousness, when we do it not for the glory and the praise of Jesus, but we do it for our own glory and our own praise. How quickly would we hide our sin and boast in our righteousness and walk in complete opposition to what Jesus would call us in Scripture? See, that's the whole heart of this. Even Bruce came up to me after first service, hearing the whole service. He's like, yeah, we need to talk after that sermon. He said, it seems very contradictory. He goes, we come up and we do an announcement about, hey, think about how God wants you to be involved, and then you pop off and say this as the pastor. So in closing, 
This is the part that's not going to make sense. If you will, turn to Philippians 4. Philippians chapter 4, probably one of the poorest churches at the time, but they were the biggest supporter of Paul's ministry. And we always think Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Understand, the context, which in scripture context is key, that is a, that is a financial verse. He's not talking about, I can do all things through Christ, I can go fly for Jesus. No, jump off a cliff, you'll fall and burn and hit, right? You're not going to fly for Jesus. You can't do all things. He's talking financially. He's like, I've been in abundance and I've been poor. I've been well supplied and life's been rough, but I can do all of that. There's nothing that God would have me walk in that I can't do through the strength that he provides me. You know, a lot of times it's like, oh, the barista got my coffee wrong, but I can do all things in Christ. They put pickles on my burger. They're testing me, but I can do all things through Christ. He's strengthened me right now. No, you're just being a moron. That's what you're being. But if you come down to verse 17, I love what Paul says. As he's looking at this church that is, like, is giving above and beyond, he says, not that I seek the gift. Not that I seek the gift. But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So we know Jesus will look at each and every one of us and I pray the words that come out of his mouth, well done and faithful servants because our ministry and what we did with our lives, we want to be fruitful to it. And so it wasn't about the amount that the church in Philippi gave to Paul. It was the fruitfulness of their ministry. He goes, I want to see that more than whatever you would give me. And so for me, I don't seek the gift and I don't want to see the fruits decrease according to our egos and our pride and our boasting. And so with like the most pastoral authority, like I am the senior pastor of this church, I want to exercise the most pastoral authority right now. And please hear me. If you are tempted to give to the heart for the house and you're going to grab one of those cards, if you're tempted to give out of any other heart posture other than obedience to Jesus, like if there's a 1% part of your heart that you feel like I'm kind of lining up with Ananias and Sapphira, don't give. Do not give to that. Because it doesn't matter if we give $3 to the Lord, which some of us think like, oh, I could only do three bucks and what could the Lord do with that? Like, when did we for, forget the promises of God? When did all of a sudden we become, you know, uh, having like amnesia to the power of God? Like, we, we need to reframe that. Like, how amazing is it that somebody would want to give above their normal generosity and give $3 to the work of the Lord? Like, did we forget that a little boy brought his lunch to the Lord and what he can do with it? See, we sometimes think so much it's about what we bring, but it's the heart in which we bring it. So you can give $3 to the Lord and you're going to fall dead in the church and have the same sin as Ananias and Sapphira because you brought the wrong heart. You could give $3 million and you're going to fall dead because you brought with the wrong heart. See, it's the heart of the matter. 
And so if there's any, any temptation in us that we would give out of a heart posture other than just full faith, trust, obedience to Jesus, unto his glory, keep your money, because I don't want to have to call the college ministry to drag your dead body out of the church. And a lot of us are kind of thinking like, you think that happened today, Pastor? You think if I grab one little dollar there and I thought, you know what, I want the glory unto myself and I'm going to put it in the box and see if I drop down. Don't put the Lord your God to test. Like, I, I wouldn't do it if it was me. See, what's better is to understand the heart of the Lord. That it's not about a number. It's about our hearts. And if we're so focused on the number that we wish we could give, you'll never walk in reality, because then you want that appearance of spirituality. Whatever the Lord leads in your heart to do, just walk in obedience to that. And if there's any temptation that there would be a hint of Ananias and Sapphira, don't give. Don't give in that. And I know that doesn't make sense. Even had a board member look at me like, what are you doing, guy? <laughs> we're, we're trying to stir the, the flock and, and try to call up men of faith and women of faith to, we see what God is doing. And I said, true, but I'd rather go on with four, five, six services in the room that we have than do it expand and do it with the wrong hearts. Because whether we reach whatever financial goal, whatever we, if we reach the, the campus development goal of how big we need for space and stuff, so, if we do it with the wrong heart, why would we ever expect the Lord to bless that? And why would we ever want to walk in that? See, we don't want to get ahead of the Lord. We don't want to get behind the Lord. We just want to walk in step with him. And so what kind of hearts not just the heart for the house, but in every aspect of our lives, what kind of heart are we to have? Think of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, the first few things that he tells us, we hear the Beatitudes is what we call them. And blessed are the pure in hearts, for they shall see God. See, the heart for the house for us Yes, we want to be in the community, be a home for broken, encouragement to the hurting, be a family for the follower of Jesus. But internally for us, it's an opportunity for us to repent, to confess our sin, to lay down some of our pride and our egos and the things that we're struggling with, and we lay those before the feet of the Lord ask for him to do a work in us so that we would have that pure heart. Because if we do any ministry, if we do anything, we take any kind of step without that pure heart. That's not what he's calling us. But he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And so when we approach the Lord with the right heart, that's when we will see him move and work in our community. That there, w- there wouldn't even be a temptation of, oh, look at Calvary and everything that they are doing. I hate when I hear that. No, look at the Lord and what he is doing. We're just the donkey that carries Jesus into the world, just like on Palm Sunday when he rode into Jerusalem. That's all we are. We're just broken vessels that he has restored and he put a beautiful treasure and it is not about us but how quickly can we get in the way of what God is doing? And so my prayer, please, if there's any bit of Ananias and Sapphira, 
don't give to this. But if the Lord is stirring in your heart, don't quench what he is doing. And even if it doesn't make sense, if it's truly what he has for you, I promise the blessing on the other side of that is more than we could ever fathom. And I'm not talking financially, but spiritually. That again, if we focus on the kingdom, seek first the kingdom before Calvary, before us, if we seek first what God is doing in and through us in the lake, it will absolutely be worth it. And whatever we give up, whatever we sacrifice, whatever we need to step into and pick up and carry, it will absolutely be worth it. And it's in those moments that God works in us to have that pure heart because we see him move. Pray with me. Father, we love you.